This is an ABC podcast. I was in the library at Macquarie University and it came over the loudspeakers in the library saying, "Um, attention, we are now advising you that the Whitlam government has been dismissed. I was sick. And people spontaneously ran from the library into the quadrangle. There was just this disbelief because how could an elected government be dismissed by a monarch right across the other side of the world via her representative here. The outrage was phenomenal. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. As Catherine saw it that day in the library, the dismissal of Gough Whitlam's Labor government in 1975 marked the abrupt end of a period of meaningful progress in Australian life. In just three years, Whitlam had transformed the country, overseeing the creation of Medicare and no-fault divorce. He championed Aboriginal land rights, a racial discrimination act, free university tuition. And now, he'd been removed from office by the Governor-General, acting on behalf of the Queen. Well may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. The shock of the dismissal would stay with Catherine long after that day in the library. And eventually, it will fuel her own entry into politics, where she learns firsthand how to govern, how to compromise, and how to face down her political rivals. As the dust settles on the dismissal, Catherine decides it's time to formally join the Labor Party. Yes, this is primarily driven by her despair over Whitlam's removal from office, but also... Honestly, it gave me a good excuse to get out of the house and away from the baby for a few hours. On the nights Catherine would attend meetings at her local branch, her husband Ishtavan stays at home with their six-month-old, Adam. Ishtavan had arrived in Australia after fleeing communist Hungary. He spoke with a crisp British accent that he'd learned from watching the ABC and he enjoyed drinking black coffee and smoking Russian cigarettes. But Ishtavan did not share Catherine's passion for politics. He was incredibly cynical about politics, but he could see the enthusiasm and the joy that it all gave me. So he was very happy to take over the baby so I could go out and go to the meetings that I needed to go to. And it's at these local branch meetings that a whole universe opens up to Catherine. People addressed each other as comrade. Um, I thought that was so exciting. I thought it was just like Ishtavan smoking his Russian cigarettes. You know, it was just otherworldly. Right away, Catherine feels she has a front row seat to the action, watching new policies get debated and passed up the line. She loves a lively conversation and the way supper is always served after a night of thoughtful debate. She also marvels at all the different people who show up here, volunteering their time the principal of the local school, the neighbourhood electrician and his dedicated wife. It just was just beyond exciting to me. And then, a few months after Catherine had joined the Labor Party, her local branch is invited to attend a special campaign event. Gough Whitlam was about to run one more time and he was doing a launch at the Sydney Opera House. Catherine's told to bring Adam along, he's now 10 months old, And she's also asked to bring a white bucket to collect donations in the forecourt 
as supporters stream in to hear Whitlam speak. So we all went in on the bus together and um, as we were going in, I was getting briefed up by the older members and they were the ones who said things like, now, if you meet anyone famous, that's fine. Don't freak out. This is an egalitarian party. No one's better than anybody else. Just say comrade, except Bob Hawke. If you meet Bob Hawke, call him Hawkey and offer to buy him a beer. So we get into the Opera House and I'm walking around the forecourt and there's so many people there. How are your donations going? Good. My bucket's rattling away and, of course, I look particularly um, poignant because I'm carrying this somewhat large baby, he was, and um, that's when it happens. Somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, we're going to film this launch and we've just realised we've got all these terrific people up on stage, but we need some ordinary people. Would you and your baby like to come up and sit on the stage while Goff makes his speech? Well, I don't remember answering yes or no. I just remember being in the lift and being taken up to the main stage of the Opera House and walking out and just gobsmacked, looked around, and there were all these people, these famous people that we'd just been talking about. And Bob Hawke was warming the audience up. He was the sort of, you know, the first act. And his little old me, you know, with my white bucket. I think I'd hand him a bucket over by that stage or somebody would say they'd take care of it. But I had the baby. Catherine settles into her seat, Adam on her lap, ready to watch the proceedings. When she hears an odd guttural sound, she realises it's coming out of the baby. And it was like a gurgle. Next... She smells it. It, It's a foul smell. Then she sees it. And it was sort of a mustard green. So it had actually come through the nappy. And it was sort of going up the back of his T-shirt that he had on. Adam had done what Catherine calls a number three. And I can only imagine the relief he felt uh, getting rid of all of that in one go. This dirty nappy cannot wait. Catherine needs to act now. People are turning around. You know, where's that smell coming from? Pardon me, but it's like a really bad fart and um, (laughs) sort of on steroids. Catherine flags down a stage manager, gesturing toward the dirty nappy that's disrupting the piece and now threatening to leak onto her trousers. With Whitlam about to go on, Catherine is rushed backstage to a green room, furnished with a table and a couple of toilet cubicles off to the side. So I'm holding the baby with one hand And I would have just been scraping the poo off. And I was sort of getting right into it. And I heard the toilet flush behind me. And then I heard the toilet door open. And then I heard a very long zip being done up. And then I heard this voice go, what's happening here, comrade? And I knew the voice and I turned round And this man that I'd watched on television, that I'd supported, that I'd cried over when he got dismissed, here he was standing, staring at my baby's bottom, asking me what was going on. And it was a reverential moment for me. Catherine stares at Whitlam, dumbstruck and in disbelief. And then she does something odd. I was so starstruck that I put my hand on the baby's tummy and I genuflected. I'm Catholic. That's what Catholics do. 
With one hand still on Adam's middle, Catherine drops to one knee and bows her head, as if kneeling before her God. (laughs) Which is not really what you're supposed to do in an egalitarian political party, but I was so overawed. And Whitlam? He's not at all put off by the scene in front of him. In fact, he's intrigued. He just continued talking to me about how old's the baby, where's the baby from, and then he saw my name tag. Catherine had taken Ishtavan's Hungarian name when they'd married. And now it catches Whitlam's eye. And he started to speak to me in Hungarian because he recognised my name as being Hungarian. And so in English, he then started to give me a full history of the Baltic region. And there was this sort of intimacy, really, I guess. Um, I'm changing a baby's nappy and he's standing beside me talking about the great wars of Transylvania. And he made me feel I was the most important person probably in the entire opera house that day. Their conversation is interrupted then by a stressed young press secretary who rushes in urging Goff to get on stage. Everyone's waiting. Catherine is bundled through the curtains and hastily shown back to her seat. It's showtime. We offer a government which will strive once again to unite the Australian people for the great tasks ahead. A true government of the people for all the people. Whitlam isn't elected as Prime Minister again. In fact, his loss is followed by a stretch of Conservative governments for the better part of the next decade. But as Whitlam's political career comes to an end, Catherine's begins with another tap on the shoulder. About a year and a half after her brush with Whitlam, Catherine's told that a Labor member serving on a nearby local council is about to run for state politics. And if he's elected... They're wondering if she wants to take his place. Catherine's just had her second child, but that's not going to stop her. At home, Ishtavan, as apolitical as ever, gives her his full support. Soon, they've bought a new house and moved into the electorate. It was really divided into three sections. Um, The first section is where the super, 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 super rich live. Then you go to sort of the middle section, and that's a little more suburban. And then there's the West Ward, which is the ward I was standing for, which had the highest density of housing commission, public housing, of any government area in Australia. About a dozen members make up the council. They're called aldermen in the official language. Historically, this had been a majority conservative council with one or maybe two Labor members. The odds of a win are stacked against Catherine. And so the first thing that happens is I need to start door knocking. The boys are little, very little, and we start walking, the whole electorate. And I'm a fanatical door knocker. Oh, hi, my name is Catherine. I'm standing for council elections. I have a pamphlet. Catherine soon finds that she loves knocking on doors like this, sharpening her pitch, engaging with people directly. I get a bit embarrassed sometimes because people start coming out with money and I go, no, no, I don't want your money. I just want you to vote for me. Catherine campaigns on getting more swings into the local park. She wants to see a nearby canal made safe after a recent accident. She's charming. Convincing. 
And I think people are really surprised because, you know, I'm a young mum and I've got a baby in a stroller and I've got another another little boy in a harness. And I say to them, I've got to get home for three o'clock because play school starts at three o'clock. So I think I was the only person that ever come across who campaigned between the hours of play school. This goes on for weeks. Catherine crisscrossing the electorate, winning hearts and minds. Finally, election day arrives. And by the afternoon, Catherine's hosting a party at home, watching as the results roll in. Well, it's it's a landslide. It's a huge celebration and there's even like a little tally board on top of my fridge where people are coming in with the votes and just astonished at how many votes I'm picking up. I was 29 years of age. I mean, I just, I don't think I thought a great deal about it. I just was more worried about what I was going to wear to my first council meeting. Fresh off her victory, Catherine jumps right into the work. And she quickly realises that local government is a very direct form of democracy. She takes endless calls about garbage bins that haven't been collected. And in response to complaints about streetlights that are shining too bright at night, Catherine forms the Street Lighting Committee. And we would go out at night and stand on people's beds to see whether or not the street light was in fact shining straight into their bedroom so they couldn't get to sleep at night. But no matter how small or mundane the issue, Catherine's empathetic, invested in people's day-to-day struggles. And one of the biggest issues in the area is trees. We were always going around to people's houses to see if they'd cut trees down because the first thing everybody does when they move in there, or they used to do, is to start cutting the trees down so they can get better water use. Many of these decisions are referred to the council's building inspector. Here was a man who could not have been more different from Catherine. Old-fashioned, deeply conservative, he had as much reverence for John Howard as Catherine did for Gough Whitlam. And if Catherine reviewed a planning decision that she didn't agree with, she would sit down and draft a letter to the inspector. And saying basically that on behalf of the Labor Party, I'm writing to you to tell you we are unhappy with that decision and ask you to reconsider that decision. Except because I thought I was really funny, I would always address them to the comrade inspector and I would sign them fraternally yours, fraternally yours, or yours in solidarity was another favourite. But as Catherine would soon discover, the inspector wasn't known for his sense of humour. In fact, this guy would come to be the bane of her council life. I did hear from one of the women who was already on the council that he had expressed to her his hatred of me before I even got there. (laughs) It may simply have been that Catherine, a young working woman, a member of the Labor Party, was just deeply irritating to this man from an older, more conservative generation. Her insistence on calling him comrade probably didn't help. And then finally, the two of them meet face-to-face at her first council meeting. And I stood up to say a maiden speech, say that I was pleased to be there, and he sidled up beside me and he said, I'm just letting you know you've got your dress on inside out. Well, I looked down because, you know, I left two kids behind and I rushed out. And no, it wasn't true. The inspector had said it to rattle her, just to put her off her game. I think he was genuinely upset that I had made it onto council. And I was very untrusting of him after that. Despite these regular skirmishes with the inspector, Catherine 
is getting things done. I am really good at it and I'm getting lots of compliments and I'm loving it. I'm just enjoying it. And because I can also feel that I'm doing something, I'm making a difference. Catherine chairs various committees. She visits local schools and addresses complaints. And as her confidence builds, she even learns to ignore the way the inspector's lip would curl into a caustic smile as she speaks during council meetings. Two years pass this way. And then Catherine is faced with something that threatens to derail not only her political career, but her whole life. The news comes while she and Ishtavan are on a rare holiday with their boys in Hawaii. And while we were there, um, Ishtavan had said to me that he had found this lump in his testes. Well, of course, um, we all treated it as a huge joke and talked about coconuts and all sorts of things. And when we got back to Sydney, um, he'd gone to see a very young GP who just moved into the area and he diagnosed it on the spot. He said, it's testicular cancer and you need to see a urologist tomorrow. He's crying, he's so scared, um, I'm scared. And the next day he goes into Royal North Shore and has the operation. Cancer is such a terrifying word and we're young and we've got two children and we don't know what's ahead. Right after his surgery, Ishtavan starts a course of chemotherapy. The chemotherapy makes him very, very violently ill. Um, it's a sledgehammer to kill an ant. He realises very quickly that he needs to have it on a Friday night because he can then spend the whole weekend vomiting and in bed and he can't eat and he starts to lose weight and his hair starts to fall out and he has this really strange smell, highly metallic smell. And I don't think I've ever been as frightened since as I was then. I was just terrified because it looks to me as if he's dying because of the treatment. The treatment is so barbaric. Meanwhile, Catherine tries her best to keep up with her council duties. But around the building or at the fortnightly meetings, the inspector won't let up. So his favourite thing to do was when we were looking at the building plans because we got these huge architectural plans sent to us and we would study them and sometimes I couldn't work them out. And when I got up in the council, he would say, because everyone's mic'd up, he would say, do you need a hand reading those plans, Alderman? Despite these petty humiliations, Catherine keeps juggling. Ishtavan's treatment, raising two kids, keeping up with council work, Ishtavan's condition has worsened. He's nauseous, can't keep food down. Catherine does what she can, preparing a roast chicken each week as it's the last thing that he can stomach. And one Friday afternoon, home from his chemotherapy treatment, Ishtavan walks into the kitchen. He's sort of started to get this yellow tinge to his skin because apparently the liver is affected by the treatment. Um... His voice is weaker and he was just beginning to become unrecognisable to me. Standing before her, he tells her just how sick he's become. He says, I don't think I can do this anymore. I don't think I can go on. I'm so sorry. And he would rather die than continue. I think I just go into a puddle. I can't really describe it any other way. 
I don't know where to turn. I, no one can help me. Why, why wasn't this communicated to me? Why, why didn't anyone explain to me the consequences of this treatment? The only person who can help me is the oncologist. And that's when I make the decision to do something. I'm desperate. Catherine has a long wait over the weekend. Come Monday morning, she reports to the oncologist's office. First thing. He's a bit cranky because he explains to me that this particular chemotherapy is quite brutal but very effective. And if Ishtavan can just stay on course, he'll be fine. So they've tried everything. They've given him anti-nauseants. They've given him Stematol. And if, if he decides not to continue, then that's his decision. But it would be a very foolish decision. And basically, he turns on his heel to leave. And then he stops. And then he turns around. He says, there is one thing. And I went, what? He said, well, it's illegal. It's marijuana. We're having quite a bit of success with people who are very, very nauseated by the treatment. We're giving them marijuana. I said, well, how do you get it? And he said, you know how I get it? I send my daughter up to King's Cross and she buys it because I've got patients a lot sicker than your husband and they take priority. I'm sorry. So all the way home in the car, I develop the plan. I'm going to be a drug lord. (laughs) So I get home and I ring an old friend of mine from my uni days because I knew he was a bit of a pothead. And he goes, yeah, no problems. He said, but what you need to do is you need to go and get some jiffy pods and you need to grow the seeds and then plant them into the ground. I had no idea this was a whole new world to me. And that's what I do. So I dig up the backyard I put the jiffy pods in, I put the seeds in, and I start to grow marijuana. And Ishtavan, as soon as he has almost the first joint, it rids the nausea. And not just that, the best part is that it increases his appetite. And so he starts putting weight back on again, and he starts looking normal. And people start commenting to me and saying, oh, geez, he's looking well now, what's going on? I can't tell, he's smoking marijuana. And it's having the desired effect. Um, The nausea's gone and he's hungry. In fact, he's hungry all the time. Catherine knows what she's doing is illegal. But she can't worry about that when Ishtavan is just doing so much better. When they can hope again that he might make a full recovery. And she's sure she can keep this secret. No one knows, except the next-door neighbours, and they've offered to help water the crop as Catherine's council work picks up again. With re-election now less than a year away, Catherine can feel her confidence rising. She's learnt so much, and people like her. The building inspector still isn't a fan, but he seems to have lost some of his power over her. And so I'm thinking about the next term on council, and the mayor assures me that she'll make sure I have a term as mayor, and that'll be fantastic, and everyone says, oh, you'll be the first Labor mayor on the council. And And do you feel like you're building momentum again? I am getting momentum. By now, Catherine's also back to attending the fortnightly council meetings, which always involve a lot of background reading. She goes through everything carefully, and she's even worked out how to decipher the building plans that the inspector still quizzes her on. These papers would arrive on her front doorstep like clockwork, a few days before each meeting. 
the ranger, he's given the job of delivering the council papers. This particular day, the first thing that happened was I noticed that the council papers weren't on the front doorstep. And I was a bit concerned by that. And I went up the side passage round to the back door and there on the back door were the council papers. On top of the papers is a note. And it is not from the ranger. And written in the inspector's handwriting was the comment, nice tomatoes, alderman, see you Monday night. This particular day, the ranger was sick. And so they went to the inspector and asked the inspector if he would deliver the council papers. And I knew then that he knew that he had seen the plants in the backyard. I felt like I was going to faint. Because it had been a a war of one-upmanship right through the whole time I was on the council. I mean, there were so many examples. And I think, too, that was the first time I realised that it was all over. My political career is over. Everything. Everything is over. The first feeling that sets in for Catherine is fear. What I thought might happen was that he may go back to the council and that they would use the information against me and my family and against my children. Then... She imagines the damning headlines that would show up in the papers if this got out. Local Labor alderman grows dope in backyard. I knew that there was nowhere to go with this. Nobody would want to know. Everyone would distance themselves from me. Standing there on the back step, Catherine realises that everything she's worked for, as a young woman in the late 70s, trying to build a political career and be a good partner and a good mum. It's all just evaporated. But then, mixed in with the loss, there is also a sense of release. Of relief. It had been an enormous two years. You know, there were three years, really. I think there was sort of an exhaustion in it, too. This is all over now and I don't need to do this anymore, and I can just sleep, I can just rest. Ishtavan is better now. Catherine's plan had worked, the chemotherapy had been effective. And now, she's only got one more thing to do. And she'll need to move quickly. I had a couple of minutes to think about what I needed to do, and what I needed to do was get the plants cut down. So that's what I did. And then I brought them into the house and I started the process of drying them out as I'd seen Ishtavan do many, many times. It takes all afternoon. And as night falls, the buds slowly dry out in the oven. So I cut it up and packed it up and I wrapped it in brown paper. And I had it delivered anonymously to that oncologist at Ron Shore Hospital. Catherine wants other families families who made their own desperate visit to that oncologist, to be able to help their loved ones so they needn't suffer the way Ishtavan had. And for the same reason, Catherine has no regrets about what she did. It saved his life, absolutely, absolutely. He's 72 now, 73, and he's still alive. He lives up in Queensland. So he survives, but your marriage... Didn't. 
Right. Everything in our life was just thrown up in the air um, and uh, it just settled elsewhere. And the building inspector? A few months after discovering Catherine's crop, he abruptly left council and moved into state. For her part, Catherine tells me that as much as she loved politics, she hasn't missed it the way she thought she might. Instead, she holds on to the boldness that it taught her. A boldness that she still carries. It made me courageous to put my hand up for things that sometimes seemed out of my reach, but I thought that I had the capacity to do them, so I'll put myself forward anyway. So that courage goes back to those days, I think. Thanks so much for listening to Days Like These. If you've got a story about your longtime rival or nemesis, send it on over to us, dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Kulas, and I reported today's episode on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Gadigal peoples. Sound design and engineering by Emerus Cronin. The supervising producer is the one and only Sophie Townsend. Thanks also to Tim Roxburgh and Lisa DeVisi. Our brilliant executive producers are Sophie Townsend and Tom Wright. See you next time. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Carl. And we're the hosts of the kids' podcast, Short and Curly. Each of our episodes tackles a curly question about the world. Like, should we try and bring back extinct animals? Is it your fault if your room is messy? And is it ever okay to lie? Plus, we have a lot of fun along the way. Well, we make a lot of fun of you, Carl. Oh. It's a podcast to get the whole family thinking and talking. Short and curly. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.